Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to Connecting Vets Daily. Daily. Wow. For Tuesday, November 13th. 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame, and coming up on today's show, we are going to talk to ABC News national correspondent Matt Gutman about his new book. And what that book focuses on is the rescue of that Thai soccer team. You remember that a couple months ago, soccer team went wandering into a cave, as I guess soccer teams do on occasion, and ended up getting stuck in there due to rising floodwaters. They were stuck in there for quite a while, and you may not know it, but the United States military played a pivotal role in their rescue. It's part of what Matt Gutman's new book is all about, and we are going to talk to him about that book coming up later in today's show. But first, let's take a look at the headlines and what's taking place around the world. We lost one of the greats in the veteran community, the comic book community, really the world community, with the passing of Stan Lee, who passed away yesterday at the age of 95 years old. Stanley Martin Lieber, that was his full name as he was born. And a lot of people aren't aware of this, but he's of the age where just about, well, not everybody, but a lot of people served. And in fact, Stan Lee did, joining the Army Signal Corps in 1942, shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor. He started off with kind of a, well, I guess a regular military job. He was a lineman responsible for telegraph poles and communications equipment repair and did that for a little while until somebody figured out, hey, this Lieber kid's a pretty darn good writer, and he got moved over to the training film division to actually write those scripted training films and the other things that the Army did during World War II. In fact, Stan Lee is one of only nine soldiers to ever receive the military classification of playwright. Bet you didn't even know that was a job available to you. Well, it isn't these days, but it was back then, and Lee served in the Army until 1945, the end of World War II, and then got back to what would, of course, become his calling card, and that is the world of comic books. Stan Lee, of course, the face of Marvel, one of the founders of Marvel, came up with so many great characters, uh, including, I mean, Spider-Man, Iron Man, the X-Men, go through the list, and Stan Lee had a hand in all of it. And, of course, him being a veteran, not what he was known for, but an important part of his life. And actually, just last year, in March of 2017, he was inducted into the Signal Corps Regimental Association with an honorary membership into the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Infantry Regiment during the Comet Convention at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington. Didn't even know that they had Comic-Cons at military bases, but it would seem to be a pretty good idea. You have a lot of fans of the comic and sci-fi and, well, all of that fantasy universe within the military. And, of course, many of them, and us, as I do count myself as one of them, are sad to hear of the passing of Stan Lee. You know, he had a rough time over the last couple of years. There were some legal things going on. Uh, there were a lot of issues, apparently, with the people that were supposed to be managing his fortune. Uh, a lot of disagreement within the family. 
Stan, uh, you know, dealt with it as best he could from everything that we heard and saw and now is in a better place and doesn't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. So fair winds and following seas to former United States Army Sergeant and playwright Stan Lee. One of the greats. Gone forever. Taking a look at some of the other news out there, Walmart is one of the biggest corporations in the country. I mean, there are Walmart stores and there's super centers and all that stuff. Sam's Club, that's tied to the Walmart uh, uh, corporation as well. Well, Walmart has an initiative already that they made in 2013 called Veterans Welcome Home, where they aim to take on 250,000 military veterans. And the goal they set for themselves was 2020 course that's just over a year away now right well they expect to surpass that goal in 2019 so that's great love to see a company making a commitment to hire veterans and then actually realizing hey these people are such good hires we're going to hit the number goal that we had long before we planned on it looks like about a year before they planned on it uh now they're going to add to that but This edition is not specifically aimed at veterans. It's aimed at veteran spouses. That's right. It's a new initiative recognizing the unsung heroes that are military wives and husbands. They have a 26% unemployment rate. Think about that. The veteran unemployment rate is now under 3%. Of course, there's some numbers in there. There's some number fudging going along or some some misunderstanding of those numbers. 2.9% who are actively seeking employment. There are others who are unemployed who are not seeking employment. What percentage? Well, we don't know exactly. But the overall unemployment rate among the veteran community is now believed to be below 3%. That's fantastic. The unemployment rate among military spouses, 26%. That's one in four, essentially, do not have a job. And there are a number of reasons that that takes place. Of course, we've talked to military spouses who face serious issues. The first one that comes to mind is Lauren Hope of Hope Designs Limited and Shop Military, the organization that she's now started uh, to bring those military businesses together and allow people to uh, kind of view them all in one place. She, Lauren Hope, was a trained chef, Culinary Institute of America, competed on Top Chef, worked for Ritz-Carlton as a chef. I mean, this was a legitimate Top Chef, not just a competitor on the TV show. Of course, she's also an Army spouse, and when they got stationed out in Kansas, I believe it was, there weren't any Ritz-Carltons around for her to work at. There weren't any place like there weren't. There weren't any place like. There wasn't any place like the Ritz-Carlton for her. Ooh, my little camera fell down. Let me fix that real quick. The uh, There wasn't any place for her to ply her trade, her specialty, this thing that she had spent years perfecting. She also couldn't find anything that was really close. Working designing cakes at the exchange or sh- uh, manager, shift manager at uh, Panera Bread. Not quite what a a trained chef is looking for as far as employment. She went into business for herself, and part of the problem that she faced was the constant moving. Military spouses deal with that, and we often don't think of it because the military member that's being transferred, that's PCSing someplace, they have a job waiting for them when they get there. The military spouse typically does not. That's why you have a 26% unemployment rating, but Walmart is looking to hire a whole bunch of those military spouses. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what number or what goal they're setting for themselves, but in Hawaii alone, as we're seeing this reported by Hawaii News Now, 
518 veterans have been hired since 2013 to work for Walmart, and now they're looking to add military spouses to those numbers, which that's fantastic to hear. That's a group uh, that needs uh, a little bit more assistance than they're currently getting, so glad to hear it. In related news, Yahoo Finance has put out their list of the 10 best companies for veterans. Transferring military skills into the corporate workplace, not always that easy. In fact, it can be incredibly difficult, and some jobs in the military, they just don't transfer very well to many, if any, industries. We know that that's a concern that a lot of people have. There are some companies out there, though, who have a good track record of hiring veterans and of having positions that veterans fit into, and that's what Yahoo Finance looked at. And the majority on this top 10 list are technical companies. Technological, technical, technological companies that work in the tech and defense industries. If they're working on defense contracts, that gives veterans a leg up right there. They understand a little bit more of what these companies are dealing with. So we're looking at companies, uh, you know, in the the bottom five of the top ten. You've got Lockheed Martin, BAE Systems, Schneider, Intelligent Waves, LLC, Union Pacific, the railroad. They're on there as well, coming in at number eight. The top five, you've got Prism Inc., that's a tech company, Booz Allen Hamilton, a tech company, and then in the top three, we've got two tech companies and a government organization. The government organization coming in at number three on Yahoo Finance's list of the 10 best companies for veterans, U.S. Customs and Border Protection. There you go. It makes sense. There are few things that everybody in the military has to do that we all have in common, regardless of whether you served in the Air Force, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, wherever you served, you stood watch. You stood guard duty. That's a big part of what Customs and Border Protection does. Maybe you work the front door at a facility, checking bags on people coming in. Well, Customs and Border Protection, it's just kind of an expanded level of that, a much greater level, a much larger level. But Customs and Border Protection, the number three organization for hiring veterans, according to Yahoo Finance. Number two, CACI International. Now, this is a company that I was not particularly familiar with, but doing some research found out that they have a tie that's a little bit similar to Customs and Border Protection and that CACI is instituting the IT and tech stuff for TSA, Transportation Security Administration, Of course, TSA, you see them at the airport, you see them everywhere. CACI won the IT management contract for TSA, so that's what CACI does. And they are on that list of Yahoo's top 10 companies for veterans coming in at number two. And then number one, this one's my favorite, another one that I had to look into to find out exactly what it is that they do. But just based on the name of the company, Mantech. Man tech, making technology for men, you assume, right? Well, not necessarily, uh, not just for men. Man tech provides innovative solutions in cybersecurity, big data analytics, enterprise IT, and systems engineering to agencies that carry out some of our most important things. So Man tech is listed as the number one company for veterans. 
If you're looking for a job, Mantech is where you want to go. And not just because of the cool name, but because they have apparently a lot of jobs available and uh, yeah, have been around since 1968. So that's another benefit there. This isn't some brand new company that you never know how long it's going to be around for. Looks like Mantech has been around already for coming up on 50 years or right at 50 years this year and has been doing a lot of good stuff and apparently doing a lot of hiring veterans. You can find that list at Yahoo Finance. Again, Mantech number one, CACI International number two, Customs and Border Protection number three. The rest of the list, Booz Allen Hamilton, Prism Incorporated, Lockheed Martin, Intelligent Waves LLC, Union Pacific Railroads, BAE Systems, and Schneider. So a lot of tech companies. The majority are tech companies there. And a lot of people in the military do at least a little bit of tech work or have some sort of tech aspect to their job while they're serving. So uh, kind of interesting, but not so surprising, I would say, that we have so many tech companies on that list. Now moving to a story that really warms the heart. And this is about a Marine who lost his arm and leg, both right arm and right leg, in an IED blast in Iraq in 2005. His name is Mark Byers, Purple Heart recipient, Lance Corporal in the United States Marine Corps, lives on a 15-acre farm in upstate New York, but his home was not particularly conducive to someone who's missing their right arm and right leg. There are things that can make life more difficult, things that you might not think about, I might not think about, but Mark Byers and his family thinking about and dealing with them every day. And this is someone who needed 39 surgeries and months of rehab before he was able to return home to his wife, Denise. Well, CBS News is reporting that the Tunnel to Towers Foundation have gifted Denise and Mark Byers with a brand new smart home that's being built, that's been built for them on their 15-acre farm up there in East Aurora, New York. What do they do for a living up there? Well, it's a very northern New York and northeastern thing. They make maple syrup, honey, and seasonal poultry and produce on Briar's Maple Farm. Uh, They sacrificed a lot, of course, but now they are the proud owners of a smart home. The foundation, Tunnels to Tower Foundation, of course, you know them best probably from the Tunnel to Towers run in New York. And yes, Joe Schnelli, it is in Buffalo, up in your neck of the woods, South Canada, as we from the uh, the lower part of the Northeast call it. The foundation has created 75 smart homes for disabled veterans, spending over $60 million to build them. They've set a goal of building 200 smart homes for severely injured service members. Right now, they're coming up on the halfway point of that. Now, on the same day that the buyers received their new home, The group also presented a brand new smart home to Army Specialist Kevin Trimble in Oak Point, Texas. Trimble was 19 years old when he lost both legs and his left arm to an IED explosion in Afghanistan. And now he's working towards a math degree at SMU, Southern Methodist University, down there in Texas. It's fantastic that these organizations are doing what they do. And the Tunnels to Towers run, you know, it started off as just that, just a run raising some funds for veterans' issues. But, you know, I don't know if they had this goal in mind when they started, but whatever it was that led them to building these smart homes for our severely disabled veterans, it's fantastic, and it's amazing. Having gotten to know many of our veterans who have lost a limb or who have suffered grave injury, the fact that there are organizations like the Tunnels to Tower Foundation out there working for them and helping them out really just makes me incredibly happy. We've talked 
too much on this show about the organizations that are taking advantage of veterans, about things like, oh, you know, little universities that get started up that aren't really a university. They're just a way for people to steal money from the GI Bill or places that claim that they're taking donations to help wounded warriors. And it turns out they're just taking money and not really giving any of it to those wounded warriors. When you can see something put into action like these smart homes from the Tunnels to Tower Foundation, I just feel like it gives you a little bit more of a belief that, yes, there are organizations and people doing great things for veterans out there. And I absolutely love to see it and love hearing about it and love it when a big organization like CBS News is reporting on it. And that's where this story is coming from. They went out there for this, out to East Aurora, New York, which is a suburb of Buffalo. Again, Lance Corporal Mark Byers and his wife, Denise, who also served in the Marine Corps, I should point out. She was a corporal working stateside. They were high school sweethearts who enlisted together in 1998. That was the year I enlisted. And we had one of those, too, in our division. I just remembered. I hadn't thought about this forever. We had a young man from Iowa, and then we found out that in our sister division, his girlfriend from Iowa was in there as well. They joined up together, hoping to be stationed in the same place. Don't recall if that worked out for them. It's kind of kind of a dangerous thing for a young high school couple to enlist and assume that they're going to be stationed in the same place. Uh, I would say that in the Marine Corps, you probably have more of a chance of that happening just because there are fewer duty stations in the Marine Corps than in any other branch of service. I mean, there are specific places that you're probably going to go to if you're in the Marine Corps, West Coast, East Coast. Yeah, there are some smaller ones, but we all know what the big ones are. But the Byers family, both veterans and Lance Corporal Mark Byers, uh, one of our wounded warriors losing his right arm and leg to an IED blast. Now the proud owners of a smart home on their 15-acre farm where they sell maple syrup and honey and just uh, a really great story and glad to see them uh, glad to see them being the recipients of this awesome smart home. Here's another heartwarming story, and hopefully we're going to see more of these in the coming months and years before our World War II veterans are all gone. Because Earl Bailey, he's 94 years young, World War II veteran, waited a lifetime, really, for some people several lifetimes, to see the Army ribbons and medals he earned in World War II but never received. That's right. In World War II, there were a lot of people who were forward deployed that were over there doing what they did in places like, oh gosh, I don't know, New Guinea, of course, uh, on the European front, the little islands in the Pacific. Uh, there were tons of places where people just, you know, they might be awarded a medal or a ribbon and never actually got it because they were operational and they weren't taking too much time out from battle to present medals and ribbons. Uh, 72 years after Earl Bailey was awarded a number of medals and ribbons, he's finally received them. And he tells Connecting Vets, it was a complete surprise. I didn't expect anything near like what happened, but it was nice. The Tri-County Assembly of God Church in Fairfield, Ohio, honors all the congregation's veterans every Veterans Day. And this year, they did something a little bit special. Bailey was awarded his Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, Good Conduct Medal, World War II Victory Medal, Presidential Unit Citation, and Distinguished Unit Citation, and had them presented to him by Army Lieutenant General Claude Kicklider, retired Army Lieutenant General, I should say. 
Bailey served in the China-Burma-India theater during World War II. This is, of course, a rugged, treacherous area, a lot of jungle fighting going on. He helped pilots run supplies to units fighting in Asia, offering a hand with everything from loading planes to keeping the pilots' schedules. You know, this wasn't an infantry soldier on the front lines, but he was one of those countless support soldiers that were making sure that those on the front lines had everything that they needed And he says it was very dangerous to fly because you had the rough country under you. If you went down, even if you bailed out, there was only a slight chance that you'd get out. Most of the planes that they used back then, according to Bailey, were converted B-24 bombers. And after the war, he says about 500 of the American aircraft operating in that theater didn't return. Think about that. 500 just in his area of operations. Gives you an idea again of the scale of World War II, which is often... Just difficult to wrap your head around. His daughter, Norma Apgar, and grandson, Steve Bailey, were the ones who made the day possible, contacting Representative Mark Turner of Ohio and Dayton lawmaker Niraj Antani. They helped deliver the awards through the United States Army. The daughter telling Connecting Vets, we didn't let him know anything. They didn't want him to have any idea this was coming, and it seems that he was very surprised by it. The executive pastor of that church in Ohio says the story is inspiring and can be tremendous encouragement to other military families. After leaving the Army in 1946, after his three years of service, Bailey worked for a paper company in Middleton, Ohio, for more than 44 years, retiring in 1987. Now, Earl Bailey was probably, when he was, uh, you know, dressed up a little bit more than usual, not in his working uniform, but in the the office work uniform, was probably using the pink and green uniform. That's a World War II era uniform that it looks like the Army has approved to go Army-wide as soon as 2020. So coming up on just over a year away, there's a release that the Army posted Sunday on their website but did not put out through any of their social media channels, which is kind of interesting, although it could be just a case of the military not realizing or utilizing uh, social media as best they can. We've seen that before. According to the statement, the current Army Blues uniform will return to being a formal dress uniform, while the Army Greens will become the everyday business wear uniform for all soldiers. So this is for those working in an office. This is for those kind of mid-level uniform days where you're, you're not wearing your camouflage and you're not wearing a dress uniform. This is going to be working in an office or dealing with office work, that kind of thing. The Army says the uniform is going to be cost-neutral, although they didn't really give out any of the plans for how that's going to be. Uh, They did say that it's going to be a more expensive uniform. The positive of it being a more expensive uniform due to the materials is it's expected to last longer, which should help defray some of those costs. But the biggest thing is that in the release, they say new soldiers will receive the uniform not when they get to basic training, but when they reach their first unit of assignment. That sounds kind of interesting offhand, right? You go to boot camp, basic training, whatever you want to call it, and you receive all your uniforms. I remember that day at Great Lakes, Illinois, where you just stood there on an assembly line with a big plastic bin, and they just piled uniform after uniform after uniform in there, as well as measuring you for, uh, you know, hemming and dress uniforms and stuff like that. You'd get measured, and then a couple days later, I think we got them back. That was during P-Days, what they call it in the Navy, which was the uh, the preparation days or whatever the P stood for. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I remember the uniforms. I remember uh, getting the peanut butter shot in the rear end. I remember all that 
lovely stuff that took place there. But in the Army, you're not going to be receiving your work uniform, essentially, this pink and greens. Here's their reasoning for do that. They think that it will save cost on issuing and tailoring uniforms because the soldiers who drop out, they won't be getting uniforms made for them that then never get to be used unless you find someone who's the same size or weight fluctuations. That's something I didn't think about, but something that's certainly uh, a big issue at military basic training. A lot of people go in there weighing a certain amount, and then you're running each and every day, five days a week. You're doing physical training regularly. You can lose a substantial chunk of weight. So if they tailor a uniform to you in the first few weeks that you get there, the first days that you get there, as it usually goes, it might not fit you by the time you leave. Then they got to tailor it again, or they got to get you a whole new uniform. So that actually makes sense. Is it going to make it a cost-neutral uniform? I don't know about that. The combination of the longer-lasting uniforms and the uh, fact that they're not giving to them at basic training, that could save some money. And as Chris points out on Facebook Live, not so accurately tailored. Yeah, my, my, my dress blue pants were a little bit uh, short when I came out of, out of boot camp, but got a new pair shortly after that. Well, you're listening to Connecting Vets Daily, brought to you by Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Be sure to follow us on social media, where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. One little click on your mouse or tap on your phone, and you'll be that much closer to living your best veteran life. And you'll get to check out this, this very show. The first segment is done on Facebook Live every day, and then you can hear the entire show broadcasting at ConnectingVets.com slash listen at 8.15 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4.15 p.m. each and every day. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Matt Gutman, Chief National Correspondent for ABC News and author of a new book that focuses on the rescue of that soccer team in Thailand. He was there, and so was the U.S. military, specifically the Air Force. You're going to hear all about it right after this. Welcome back to Connecting Vets Daily from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it's what we do. And you know why we do it? Because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform of our United States Armed Forces. And just as importantly, we all know what it's like to take that uniform off for the last time. That's why we're working hard each and every day to get you the information, the news, the benefits, the programs that you need. And it's all right there at ConnectingVets.com. And you can also follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest, well, you may have seen him in a number of places, including on your television, as he works for ABC as their chief national correspondent. He's also an author who's written the new book, The Boys in the Cave, which is about the rescue of those boys who were trapped in the cave in Thailand. His name is Matt Gutman and joins us now. Matt, good morning. How are you today? Hey, Eric. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So this story, of course, was one that unfolded before our eyes on television. It was uh, an amazing story with lots of ups and downs taking place throughout it. When did you first uh, become, well, part of the story through your reporting on it? When did you first get over there? I was actually on vacation with my family. We were in Tel Aviv. Um, And, you know, I, I do a lot of survival things. It's always been something of interest to me. And having heard that the boys had already been in the cave for nine days, I think like many people, I thought there was no way that they could have survived. They've, they've got to be dead. Uh, and then the report came out, they're alive. Um, and so within 18 hours of that, I was on a plane, or even less, um, to Thailand. And um, I started reporting. But yeah, I, I got to say, you know, one of the things that was 
so exciting and exhilarating about writing this book is that I didn't know a lot when I started writing, right? I knew what I knew was how little I knew. I knew that there were huge gaps that we didn't know. And the more I reported on it, the more I learned that I didn't know. And so it was really exhilarating to be able to pick up all these pieces and um, figure out how things were done. And it was this giant puzzle that ended up, uh, I ended up putting together. Um, and again, I mean, the reason I'm on this call with you is because um, the U.S. military was absolutely seminal in ensuring that the boys got out of the cave alive. And at the time when we were in Thailand, we had no idea. Um, so basically, on June, so the boys went into the cave. I'm just going to start. The boys were into the cave June 23rd. It was a Saturday. Um, by Monday morning, June 25th, it had become a massive international story in Thailand. Um, and the Thai government began using all of its contacts to try to figure out who can help and where they are and how quickly they can get there. One of the calls went out on June 26th in the morning, and that was to um, uh, Pacific Command. And Pacific Command relayed the call all the way down to the 353rd Special Tactics Group. And um, for those of you who know it or don't know it, uh, these are the folks who basically describe themselves as the human Swiss Army Knives of the Air Force. Um, these are guys and gals, but most of the guys I met were guys, um, are people who can literally do battlefield surgery, take out a, a you know, clean a wound, take care of your bullet hole in you while firing on the enemy, while calling in an airstrike uh, and calling in a medevac at the same time. I mean, they're incredible people with an unbelievable skill set. Um, and so they were called to the cave and they were there by the 27th, 28th. And their first impression was that, whoa, this, this cave is really big and it's flooding and the water is literally rising right now. Um, and they spent the next several weeks trying to figure out what resources are there on the ground, how to best utilize the resources, and what the, what the conditions are like inside the cave itself. Um, and theirs is really the untold story of the whole cave rescue. And my book focuses to a large degree on how they managed to corral everybody and then tell the Thai government what the story really is inside the cave where the boys are once they were found. Um, and then they come up with the plan to extricate them. They don't actually do a lot of the physical diving and the boys out, but they were seminal in getting the thing off the ground, planning it, and then ensuring that it ran smoothly. When I first saw some pictures and was able to identify some United States military uniforms, also some facial hair that kind of identified who those gentlemen might be in those uniforms, yeah. it was kind of surprising to me. When you arrived on scene, were they already there? And were you surprised to see them when they, when they were on scene? We, we figured, I mean, we saw them. We knew that there had been a deployment. We didn't exactly know who they were. And I certainly did not know how big a role they played because, you know, it's the U.S. military and... and we tend to keep mum about things when we're on the job. You know, these are not the kind of guys and nor are their commanders, the types of people who would start, you know, talking about what they're doing uh, until the mission's over. So I had no idea what they were actually doing. I mean, I saw them walking around in military uniforms, um, you know, and, and, and I didn't know. We had no idea what their role was. We were under the assumption that everything was being handled by the Thai Navy SEALs. Um, as it turns out from the research in the book, Thai Navy SEALs played an important role 
but not a critical role in the actual rescue. Um, they helped do some of the planning, but they were not the primary planners. They didn't manage it. Um, they were part of extracting the boys only sort of a, the, the closer reaches of the cave to the exit. Um, but uh, yeah, it was really it was really a, a very important role that the U.S. military played in getting those kids out alive. And I can tell you for a fact, Eric, that if the 353rd folks hadn't been there, those kids would still be in the cave right now. Wow. And we're speaking with Matt Gutman. Matt is the author of The Boys in the Cave, Deep Inside the Impossible Rescue in Thailand. He's also an amazing reporter for ABC News. And I must point out, as a scuba diver myself, host of the weekly TV series Sea Rescue, which is a fantastic program that's out there as well. When you talk about the roles that everybody played, I think for those of us who are watching it unfold on the TV uh, over these weeks that this whole uh, event transpired, there were so many different stories we were hearing. We were hearing that Elon Musk was going to develop some sort of submarine that was going to go in and pull him out. We are hearing about those Thai Navy SEALs. Of course, we didn't hear much about the U.S. military, but it sounds like you're saying they played an extremely important role. Was it just in the planning, or were they involved in the extraction in any way, or what other things did they do beyond the planning phase of it? I'm just going to set the scene. So there are thousands of people, Eric, who are on top of the mountain, trying to find alternate routes in, including the U.S., um, uh, the, the, the special tactics operators were definitely involved in that because they're good at clearing areas, creating LZs um, to, to bring in the drills and, and do those kinds of things. But they quickly realized that they're not going to be able to drill into this mountain. They're not going to be able to find an alternate route into it from, you know, an unexplored cave uh, or entrance. And so they started focusing on the resources they had. And they realized that at the cave were a bunch of world-class divers, um, and they supported them in going deeper and deeper into the cave. Um, and eventually, those are the guys who found the boys uh, over a mile and a half inside this cave through a mile of actual water, submerged uh, diving um, in some of the most grueling conditions that you can possibly imagine. Um, once they got everybody together, They've created this plan, bringing in people from uh, Belgium and Finland and England and Malta and Australia, um, and they crafted this plan together. But the problem was, Eric, that they still didn't have a go-ahead from the Thai government. The Thai government had promised the world, journalists, its own people, that it was going with a zero-risk option. That meant that they hoped to get every single kid out alive. The only way that they could do that right then was to wait out the monsoon season, have the kids stay where they were and wait it out. Um, by the way, obviously it took 10 days to find the kids, so it was not even easy to get to them at all. Um, the problem is, as the Americans learned, because they sent in a confined spare space um, air monitor, that there was only 15% oxygen in the chamber. They quickly realized that um, after they sent in their first 100 MREs, that they couldn't keep restocking them simply because it was so physically grueling to get those MREs back there. Um, then they realized that the water fluctuates and it keeps rising. And at some point, it's going to cut these kids off um, and, and make their living space about the size of a dining room table. Um, and they realized that if they don't get them out soon, they might die. They will definitely die. And if they don't get them out soon, like ahead of the next big rain, which was coming a few days ahead, they might drown pretty soon. And so they finally got a meeting 
before all the Thai bigwigs, including the interior minister and a couple of people from the royal guard who directly represented the king of Thailand, who in some ways is the final arbiter. And they basically laid it out like this. They said, listen, we don't envy your position, but if you keep these kids in there through the end of the monsoons, which could be three, four months away, we guarantee you they will all die. There is not a single chance for survival. Major Hodges, who Charlie Hodges, who was the head of the 353rd um, Special Tactics Group, then followed up by saying, but if you want to save some of them, we have a plan. We can't promise you that we'll save all of them. In fact, some of our divers believe that up to 80% of the children and the coach will die. However, we hope to save some of them. And the head of the incident command in Thailand asked them, well, what do you guys, what do you call a successful mission? And Hodges said, listen, if we bring out one live child to his parents, I would call that a success because the alternative is that they all die. And reluctantly, the Thai government signed off on it because they had no choice and they did it wisely. It was a courageous decision, which Thai government officials knew could cost them their jobs, maybe even more. Um, and they went ahead with it. Now, the Americans played a critical role after what was called Chamber 3. So sort of the midway point where beyond, of, beyond which um, was pretty much dry. And so they were the primary medics because, as you know, those uh, pararescuers are some of the best medics in the world. I mean, they can do battlefield surgery in low light, on a mountaintop, on a cliff, you know, under fire. And so they were the first people to actually look over the kids once they were brought out of the submerged part of the tunnel. And the divers didn't even know sometimes if the kids were alive or not because they were so heavily sedated. So the, the PJs were the first to do this preliminary check, and then the PJs carried them through the next several hundred yards of tunnel. They also created these rope systems uh, that would more easily ferry the boys up and down these very jagged uh, cliffs inside the cave. And then the Thai Navy SEALs carried them the last, I don't know, five, six hundred yards or so. So they played a critical role um, in everything but physically taking the boys out through the submerged parts of the tunnel. And even though those PJs and the rest of those guys and gals are, um, you know, very good divers, they are not the best cave divers in the world. Those are the Brits. And so they said, hey, listen, you guys do this better. You should do that part. We'll take up these other roles. So that was a long-winded explanation of, of <laughs> what the Americans did. <laughs> well, it's an amazing story. And the part that the U.S. military played in that story, I don't think is as known to the public uh, as it maybe could or should be. Of course, knowing those uh, types of operators, that's typically the way that they prefer things. Do you think, yeah. though, Matt, that things like your book, The Boys in the Cave, Deep Inside the Impossible Rescue in Thailand, and we're talking with Matt Gutman, author of that book, do you think that this can be an eye-opener for some people as to the variety of missions undertaken by the U.S. military across the world when it comes to rescue, relief efforts, and things like that, that it's not all about war and bullets with the U.S. military. Absolutely. And, and when you specifically look at uh, Pacific Command, um, they're responsible for 52% of the world. Um, a lot of it is ocean, um, but it's a pretty wide swath of the planet that they are tasked with um, not only protecting for U.S. interests, to help in humanitarian causes. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, the, the 353rd, these folks have been deployed to Afghanistan. They definitely use bullets. They definitely call in airstrikes. They definitely do what warriors are trained uh, to do, but they also do what warriors are also trained to do, which is save people. And so a lot of people don't know, 
but the 353rd has been involved in the 2004 tsunami that destroyed um, massive parts of Indonesia, Thailand. The tsunami waves were felt as far away as Africa. Um, they deployed there and did tremendous humanitarian work. They were deployed during Fukushima, the, ma- or the, the massive earthquake off of Japan in 2011, um, in helping with the um, getting, getting the airstrips ready for people to land and planes to land to be able to ferry supplies to the people in stranded areas and assessing whether or not the airstrips were fit for landing. Um, they helped in other humanitarian um, uh, roles there. And also, I was in Haiti in 2010 for that horrific earthquake that killed 250,000 people. And the reason that my plane was allowed to land is because those folks, the, it wasn't the 353rd, but it was basically the same special um, tactics operators, were there making sure that the airfield ran properly, assessing and doing engineering work on the runways itself, um, and doing air traffic control, which, you know, air attack is, is one of the things that they do. So they're everywhere, and they do a lot of roles that people don't know about, and a lot of them have nothing to do with weapons or guns, but just with helping people and, and helping countries that have seen better times. We've been speaking with Matt Gutman. Matt is the author of the new book, The Boys in the Cave, Deep Inside the Impossible Rescue in Thailand. He's also award-winning ABC News chief national correspondent, TV host, a man of many talents, and writing this book is just one of them. Matt, if people are interested in in ordering the book, if people are interested in finding out more about this story, because really we've just touched on the very tip of a, uh, a big iceberg, as it were, when it comes to this story, where can they go to find out more about The Boys in the Cave? I'd say probably the easiest thing is to just go to Amazon and look up Boys in the Cave, and you'll find it on books or probably in all departments. But, yeah, Boys in the Cave on Amazon is probably the easiest thing. And come November 13th, um, it'll be on bookstands, wherever you buy books. So one of those two places is, is a surefire way of finding it. Um, you know, I, I do hope your audience enjoys the book, and I, I hope I think that they will. Um, I became – it was one of the – you know, those moments that I'm always a proud American, but it's something that made me feel really good about our military and our country. Um, okay, one more anecdote. I know you're, you're short on time. You go but right just, ahead, man. Now we got time. We got time. As many anecdotes as you want. <laughs> okay, so the U.S. military and the government was so engaged in this rescue that they started, they, they threw a tremendous amount of resources. Um, so uh, Major Hodges, who was the commander of this unit, and uh, Master Sergeant Derek Anderson, who was the, basically the head of operations, the head of planner, um, they realized that as soon as the boys were found on July 2nd that they needed to get an air quality meter in there and pronto. They also needed MREs and, and, and some other exchanges of, of supplies and stuff. So the Air Force sent an AC-130 from Okinawa to Thailand basically just to deliver um, a few supplies that because they knew they needed it quickly. But that's how devoted sometimes the, the U.S. military can be to humanitarian causes and other causes. And it's just amazing to, to learn after the fact, but learn about the might and the quickness with, with which the U.S. military can react. Um, and, you know, the devotion and dedication that our airmen and women showed to this particular cause and to everything that they do and to learn how good they are at being this Swiss Army knife. I mean, what what they told me is that our job, if you can distill it into a few words, is basically to solve problems. We solve problems. And without them, my reporting shows that problem would not have been solved. And I, 
I'm 99% sure those boys would still be in that cave. And at this point, three months later, they would not be alive. So I was very, very proud um, to have participated in this, to learn about the 353rd and, and this, you know, unsung group of U.S. Uh, of airmen and um, and very proud to that they were American. And that's my people that were that were doing this stuff way off in Thailand um, and that most people didn't even know that they were there. So it was it was it was pretty rewarding for me. It is an amazing story, and it's all right there in the book, The Boys in the Cave, Deep Inside the Impossible Rescue in Thailand by Matt Gutman. And that book is out today, actually. The Boys in the Cave, Deep Inside the Impossible Rescue in Thailand. You know, it's one of those things. When I saw the pictures coming out from Thailand, saw some video, saw some uniforms that looked pretty familiar. Saw some guys that didn't look like they were in the Thai military (laughs) and also looked like eh, had some of the telltale markings of our special operations folks. Facial hair, uh, lack of unit patches on the uniforms, different things uh, that just, you know, when you've served and when you've come across those folks in the past, um, you've you've learned to ID them. Of course, Matt Gutman was there and he ID'd them and really just a fascinating story of something that, you know, when you looked at it from the outside, seemed rather simple, you know? send some cave divers in there and the cave divers can bring air and food and anything that they need to bring but then you realize well cave diving is incredibly difficult even when you're just doing it for fun i am a scuba diver myself i'm not a cave diver i've been inside a couple of shallow caves nothing like what the real deep cave divers do those underwater spelunkers and my cave diver friends talk about how scary it is even when you're just doing it for entertainment essentially how difficult, dangerous, and frightening it can be. You're kicking up silt from the bottom. Visibility goes down to zero. Again, this cave, uh, the water was uh, rising and got to a point where there was no way to walk out, and there wouldn't be for a long time because you have uh, a monsoon season down there in Thailand, the rainy season. It's no joke. For anybody who was ever stationed or lived in a a tropical location, specifically in uh, Asia, where you get those real rainy seasons, it it comes and there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing at all you can do about it when those rains start coming. So they had to figure out a way to get in there. And who better to help plan that than our United States military folks who are, you know, they perform rescue operations for our folks. They perform rescue operations for people affected by natural disasters around the world. You can go back to the tsunami of Indonesia and, of course, many things even long before that. It's one of those things that we do that perhaps doesn't get all the ink. It's not the uh, the combat mission, but it is an incredibly important mission nonetheless. And really, this one uh, got a lot of national attention but not a lot of attention on the American uh, participation in it, with the exception of Elon Musk. Of course, that turned into a whole circus, as many things that Elon Musk does do turn into. Uh, there were, of course, some allegations that he made towards one of the British divers who was going. I mean, it was just just a mess. But there was some great stuff going on there, too, that wasn't a mess with Americans involved, specifically those airmen, special operations folks, the PJs and TACPs that were down there making sure that everything uh, was organized properly, although they weren't technically the ones to go in and operate the rescue. They were the ones who, in as Matt Gutman told us, in large part designed and came up with the idea for the rescue, which is uh, a truly fantastic thing and just as important as those who did it. 
I want to point you towards uh, the World War I Centennial Commission's work to get a World War I memorial here in Washington, D.C. There is a National World War I memorial, but it's in Kansas City. And Kansas City is a lovely place. There are a lot of people who go to Kansas City for various reasons throughout the year. However, Washington, D.C. is specifically where people go for uh, visiting monuments, visiting history. You've got the Lincoln Monument. You've got the Washington Monument, the World War II Monument, the Vietnam Memorial. You've got all of these things here, but there's nothing for World War I. You have Pershing Park, which is dedicated to General John J. Blackjack Pershing, who, of course, was general of the armies and commander of all American forces during World War I. But that park, for one, has fallen into a state of disrepair. Uh, two, Chad Blackjack Pershing's not exactly the household name now that he was back when uh, that park was dedicated to him. People don't pay as much attention to history as they used to. It's a sad fact, but a fact nonetheless. Now they're going to be able to add to that park, Pershing Park, with the World War I memorial that's been designed and has now started being created. They've had some uh, some mock-ups that are actually uh, being shown on Memorial Day weekend this past weekend. They were shown by Saban Howard, world-renowned sculptor, one of only a few people who could really do this, who is uh, is hoping to get this installed pretty soon. You know, in the next couple of years, they want to get this in there because World War I was a benchmark moment in American history. We've talked about it countless times on this show, and we'll talk about it countless more. World War I really set the stage, of course, for World War II, but changed the geopolitical and sociopolitical aspects of the world, including the kind of end of many of the uh, royal families and empires and dynastic rule in Europe. A lot of that came crashing down at the end of World War I, uh, for better or worse, of course, depends on the instance. You had the dividing up of territories that were owned by those empires and perhaps most importantly for the United States, the entry onto the world stage of the United States via our military and, after the war, our position as, yes, a combatant in the war, but one that didn't have the difficult ties to all of those governments over there that were on either side of World War I. Because, again, when you had these kingdoms and emperors and all that stuff, you had a lot of relatives a lot of people don't realize that the people who were in charge of England were related to the people who were in charge of Germany, were related to the people in charge of France. I mean, it, there were just so many difficult ties that would have made working out that peace agreement so difficult. Well, that's where Woodrow Wilson and the United States came in and, of course, made our mark and kind of continued on from that point forward. But an important time in American history and one that will soon be displayed at Pershing Park. And if you go to ConnectingVets.com, you can search World War One Memorial and find out a lot more about it. Well, you've been listening to Connecting Vets Daily, brought to you by Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day, including tomorrow, Wednesday, when we'll be back with the Wounded Warrior Project and so much more. Have a great day. See you tomorrow. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.